Dan has asked me to read for him Romans 1, beginning in verse 16, and I'll read through chapter 2, verse 11. Romans 1, beginning in this very familiar declaration of the Apostle Paul in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. And were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such thing. do you, things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, for the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. There are three places where Paul uses this phrase, a Jew first and also the Greek. All three of them occur right here in the book of Romans. I'm going to read them all again uh, right now. Chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, two more times, back to back. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The Jews thought they were special. In the ancient times, each region was thought of as having its own God. Uh, the Canaanites had Baal. 
the Philistines had Dagon, that the Egypt had a, a plethora of gods, and the general thought at first was that Yahweh was the God of the Jews. So the, there was this regional conception, which, whose, God is, whose God is stronger, whose God is weaker. Uh, there was a section in uh, Second Kings, I believe it was, where Syria attacks Israel um, in, on the high ground. And they figure, oh, we lost because um, their God is the God of the high ground. So we'll try again attacking on lower ground. Maybe uh, our God will be more powerful on this ground because Yahweh is only good on the high ground. Of course, they lost there as, as well uh, because we know that yeah, Yahweh is not a regional God like this. Um, he is the God of everything, the creator of absolutely everything. These other gods, Dagon, Baal, the gods of the, the Egyptians, they were these regional demons, really, and God, Yahweh, the true God, was victorious over all of them. Remember with Moses, uh, the plagues of Egypt, where each of them were directed against one of these Egyptian gods, showing how they were powerless against Yahweh. Um, the God can control the Nile? No, Yahweh can control the Nile. Your Egyptian God has no power here. Likewise, Dagon, found, they found the statue of the Philistine God bowing down, broken, before Yahweh. And of course, who can forget uh, the scene of Elijah on Mount Carmel? where Elijah challenges the false prophets of Baal. Um, call, call on your God and see if he will light the fire. He did not. Of course, Yahweh was the God who light, lit the fire and proved that he was not one of these uh, mere regional gods. Instead, he had complete authority over them, and he is, in fact, himself the one and only true God. So in the sense, yes, the Jews were very special. Their God was not a God just of, just of them, of the one people, but the God who was more powerful than any of these other uh, deities that pretended to, to be God, um, much less things made of stone, things made of iron. The Jews also had a very rich history uh, and heritage. Uh, this, this God, Yahweh, calls one man. They, they trace it all the way back to this call to Abraham, uh, living in Ur, God, Yahweh tells him, go to this land that I will show you, and I will make your descendants prosperous. I will give them dominion. They, they trace back to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. They have all these stories that they can tell how Yahweh has been their God, uh, how he led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into the promised land. The Jews also, in this particular time period where Paul is writing, they had a special hatred for the Samaritans. Uh, who were sort of the half-Jews. Uh, they had uh, intermarried with, uh, with pagans in captivity. Um, even in the time of Jeroboam, they were, they were supposedly worshiping God at a different place other than Jerusalem, where Jeroboam had these uh, golden calves. you think they would have learned from Aaron's mistake. But no, they were worshiping there. And the Jews uh, hated these half-Jews um, because they had rejected their, their ethnicity and their heritage, and had intermarried, and then also had fallen after false gods. So the Jews thought they were special in very many ways. And in a sense, they were, um, including to, to Paul himself, who wishes he were accursed on behalf of them so that they would inherit all the promises. He would rather take that on him than see Jews who would not realize the promises of God, who would not enter into his kingdom. I'm going to read here from Romans chapter 9, where he talks about this, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Again, the adoption. Of all the peoples across the face of the earth, it was Yahweh who chose them to be his people. The glory, you think of the Shekinah glory filling the temple and the Ark of the Covenant that no one could possibly stand before. Uh, the same glory that was on Moses' face when he brought down the law and people were afraid to even, even look on him. Uh, the covenants, uh, not only the covenants with uh, with. Adam and Noah, but looking into Abraham, the covenant to make a great nation, that all the nations would be blessed uh, through, through the Jews and through his seed. Uh, the giving of the law uh, to Moses at Mount Sinai. 
Um, the, the psalmist writes that no other nation's law can compare. No, nothing, whose law is as great as our, the law of our God, uh, Yahweh. This was something unique to Israel. The worship, uh, the ability to worship God, the, the very clear instructions that God gave the Jewish people for how he is to be, how he is to be worshipped, all the way down to the, the very specifications, exactly how long the, the, this part of the court of the temple is to be, this other part of the court, how do you, how do you cut the wood? Um, their God had a very unique, special form of worship that was different than any sort of worship that the other, country, other uh, people around uh, were giving. And of course, the promises, again, through Abraham, that all nations of the world would be blessed through him and that he would guide his people. Yet much, much, much of Romans dispels the Jews of this notion that their ethnicity by itself gives them as individuals special favor with God. Paul does the same, same thing kind of he does here in Romans in the book of Philippians, but in this he centers it on himself as an example of a Jew and takes it to a different level um, because of his own um, confidence that he, he would have. And you'll, you'll see here, uh, Philippians 3, 4 through 11, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Again, as an ethnic Jew, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is, comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So he, Paul goes even beyond just, I'm a Jew. Paul is... The, uh, the epitome of, uh, of Jewishness. He was you know, circumcised on, on the eight, not the seventh day, not the ninth day, but in strict compliance with the Levitical law, circumcised on the eighth day. He's also of the tribe of Benjamin. So after Joseph uh, went, uh, went missing, presumed dead, uh, Benjamin uh, then became uh, Jacob's uh, favorite, favorite son. This is the tribe that uh, Paul himself came from. Uh, he was himself a Pharisee, uh, he was out persecuting the church because he thought they were going against the law that he had been, been grown up uh, zealously uh, protecting. So Paul, if anyone has reason to say, to, to stand on the Jewish ethnicity's claim um, for Yahweh's uh, soul, soul protection, that there's, there's guaranteed salvation on the base of their ethnicity, um, Paul's at the very top of the list. Yet he considers, considers this loss uh, for the sake of what he has now in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins this uh, last half of Romans 1 that we read by acknowledging the salvation was indeed brought first to the Jews. But now he's going to explain how we all need to understand and approach God and ultimately how we are all to live in view of God's righteousness, God's wrath, in God's holiness. I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is what he's preaching. He's under obligation to preach it. He's eager to preach it. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not everyone who is a Jew, everyone who believes. And this believes in Romans 1.16 ties directly to faith in the very next verse, in verse 17. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. But this isn't just telling about the gospel. This is the gospel. 
So unfortunately, this verse is, is awkward in English uh, because this word of in here, in like the righteousness of God, that, that word isn't actually there in the Greek. So, you know, Pastor Jamie mentioned now I like foreign languages, so I'll get off on this a little bit here. Suppose you hear sports commentators say, Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback out of Clemson, or Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback from Clemson. In English, there's no difference in that, right? It's, it's, it's saying exactly the same thing. Now, one of the languages I speak is a Russian, and they have two separate words for out of and from. In English, out of, out of and from is pretty much the same. But in Russian, not only are they different, but if you use the wrong word, especially referring to a person, not only will it be very awkward, it can be possibly very insulting. The Greek here is tough because there's no word here at all. Just a modification of the word for God. So of is actually a good translation, but it doesn't mean what we immediately think it means. So God is righteousness. Your righteousness of God, you think God is righteousness. God is righteous. Absolutely. I want to make clear I'm not disputing that, but that's not what the righteousness of God means here. How do we know this? Uh, Lizzie was just reading, my daughter was reading through this passage earlier and was, was looking at this part, you know, a, as it is written, wanted to figure out, you know, what, did, what does that mean? It's because Paul, after saying what he says, he's immediately going to quote from the prophet Habakkuk, um, basically saying he's going to, he's elaborating now on what the prophet Habakkuk has already said, it is written. In Habakkuk 2, 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within, within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. God doesn't live by his faith. God, God doesn't have to have faith. He, he knows everything. Uh, God is where we put our faith in. So Paul isn't talking about God being righteous. Uh, the righteous here, as we can see from the context of Habakkuk, which Paul quotes, the righteous here is us. It's the righteousness of God it's the righteousness that comes to us from God. It's, it's, not, it's not of our own. It's from God, has its origin in God. He, Paul also explains this in Philippians 3, 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Charles Hodge writes, Men are not justified by their own righteousness. And yet, righteousness is absolutely necessary to our justification and salvation. Such a righteousness the gospel reveals, a righteousness which is without the law, which is not of works, which is by faith, a righteousness which is not our own, which is the gift of God, which is from God, which is imputed without works. Christ is our righteousness, or we are righteous before God in him. And this is the gospel of which Paul is not ashamed. A righteousness having its origin in God, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us is revealed in us in the way we live. But how does this all come about? It's from faith to faith, from the beginning to the end. It's, it's all faith in which God's righteousness is revealed uh, in us. This is what the gospel is. So this is how God's righteous, righteousness is revealed in the gospel. But how is his wrath revealed? And in particular, why does Paul introduce it at this point in the letter? So Paul begins verse 18 with an abrupt contrast between the righteous living by faith on the one hand and an entirely opposite kind of person in an opposite way of living. And over the next 10 or 11 verses, we're going to come up to this long list of heinous sins, but we must identify what is the root problem. And Paul tells us from the very beginning, it is this, that by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. So I'll read uh, verse 17 again uh, for, for context and then on to 18. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then immediately Paul goes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what has Paul just been emphasizing here? Faith. 
And with what does he contrast living by faith? I, I found it interesting, he doesn't contrast living by faith with trusting the science. He contrasts it with suppressing the truth. So faith and truth are not at odds. I want to say that again. Faith and truth are not at odds. It's, it's, it's more than that. Our faith must be in the truth. John 14, 3, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I want to read a, a few quotes now. Skepticism is the highest duty, and blind faith the one unpardonable sin. That's according to Thomas Huxley, a Darwinist. Uh, here's another one. I suspect that most of the individuals who have religious faith are content with blind faith. They feel no obligation to understand what they believe. They may even wish not to have their beliefs disturbed by thought. That's uh, Mortimer Adler, a philosopher. And the uh, last one here is, uh, to use the term blind faith is to use an adjective needlessly. That's according to uh, journalist Julian Ruck. This, this is what the outside world thinks of when they hear this word faith. But it has absolutely nothing to do with the faith that's described in the Bible. As Max Lucado explained it, our belief in God is not blind faith. Belief is having a firm conviction something is true, not hoping it's true. I'll say that again. Our belief in God is not blind faith. Belief is having a firm conviction something is true, not hoping it's true. This talk of blind faith is a straw man. So for the kids especially, I want to explain what a straw man is. So let's say you're having a debate with someone, a friendly argument, a discussion, and someone is making, making a really good point, and you don't want to address that point. So instead, you get some, get some hay or straw and some old clothes, you, 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 sho you shove all that straw up, up, in, up in the pants and in the shirt, and basically you make like a, something like a scarecrow, a straw man, and say, okay, I'm not going to address this point that this real person made. Instead, I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to argue against this straw man I made. It's wearing clothes. It's not a real thing. That, that's exactly what this talk of blind faith is. They, people don't want to address the faith as the actual claims of the Scripture and what faith means, Instead, they'll create a different argument and, uh, and address that instead. And that's what these quotes I read were attempts to do. The skeptic has to argue against a different version of faith because entertaining the biblical notion of faith would force him to confront the evidence. And this is exactly what they refuse to do. Uh, reading on in verses 19 through 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that had been made. So they are without excuse. Atheists, atheists don't exist. I'm, I'm not trying to say that to be, to be mean or disrespectful. It, it says it right here. This is what the Word of God says right here. Everyone knows God exists, including atheists. But instead of seeking to know more about God and to honor him, they suppress the truth, verse 18, because they want to do what they want to do. As Matthew Henry writes, the pagans have knowledge of God, but they do not acknowledge God. I'll read now from uh, Psalm 14:1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, a lot of us know like the, the first part. I've heard the first half of that verse quoted quite a bit. You know, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We don't seem to, we seem to ignore the part afterward. It explains why the fool is saying this. It's because they want to do these abominable deeds. That, that's why they're saying they're, he's trying to convince himself there is no God because he wants to do what he wants to do. So it, it's not an honest disagreement. It's an attempt to suppress the truth so they can live their lives their way. And this is the most basic choice of mankind, going all the way back to the garden. Will you trust your maker and follow him, or will you go your own way? And the one who decides to go his own way knows that he is rebelling against God. Now, I used this illustration with the children last month 
in the homeschool devotional uh, when discussing what faith is uh, regarding uh, Pastor Jamie's series in Hebrews. Look, I'm invisible. No one can see me. This, the game that atheist plays is literally this foolish. He knows that God can see him, but he has to constantly play this game of pretend so he can go, go on living his life his own way because he doesn't want to think of the consequences. If you're trying to live your life the own way, your own way, you know God exists, you know there are consequences, it kind of ruins the fun of it when you're, when you're thinking about those consequences. That's something you want to put out of your mind. So that's why he continues to play this game, pretending that God can't see him or that God doesn't exist. Now, this isn't to say that they don't disbelieve in God at a certain level. Uh, in fact, it confirms it. Uh, again, as Pastor Jamie said, we've uh, lived um, different parts of the world. Uh, living on the other side of the world about five years ago, uh, my family and I, we got to go uh, visit uh, Angkor, Angkor Wat and Ta Prom. Uh, those are very ancient Buddhist temples uh, that were lost in the jungles of Cambodia for hundreds of years. And they were great, huge stone temples. But apparently when they built them, they didn't check the ground underneath them very well um, because there must have been some acorns underneath. And over time, these acorns grew up into trees. And these trees were so powerful, even though they built, they built these huge, beautiful temples right on top, the acorn in the tree grew right up through the stone itself and crack the stone wide open. And this is why the Bible says atheists uh, suppress the truth. Because just like these temples in Cambodia, the atheists build up these elaborate arguments um, against, against God. Um, but they're, un, they're unwilling to confront the evidence for Christianity. They, they, try, they try to cover it up. They try to hide over it. And they're afraid to confront even their own presuppositions. For even the atheist in order to simply exist in this world, must borrow from the Christian worldview in order to build his foundation. So he can, just so he can trust the natural laws, uh, so he can trust his own reasoning ability even. But this temple of self-deception, this temple he has built to himself and to his own desires, inevitably crumbles. Verse 21 for all they knew God, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That they did not honor God is obvious, but in this season of thanksgiving, I want to stop right here. They did not give thanks to him. Did you ever consider that ingratitude was possibly the very first sin? Adam and Eve had this entire garden available to them. They had, they had God walking along with them. They had everything they, were possible, everything they could possibly want. But were they, were they thankful for God's provision for them, for, for his fellowship? No, they, they wanted the one thing, the one thing he, he had not given to them. It was ingratitude. Also, I looked up uh, thanks in the Bible and noticed that thanks very often is accompanied with the word always. I want to read uh, five verses really quickly. Um, these are all from letters of Paul. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mention you in our prayers. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, here's another one. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. And finally, uh, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And it's further interesting how when Paul mentioned this, he almost always does it in the context of prayer. Uh, we know prayer, do without ceasing. You might have heard it said, uh, turn your thoughts to prayers. So whenever you're thinking, you recognize, you know, God understands your thoughts. Just turn that to a prayer. Start talking, him, talking to him as you thank, as you think, and as you think, you can also thank. Every thought, every moment, if you're doing this, if you're constantly filled with the Holy Spirit, if you're constantly expressing this gratitude, 
and thankfulness, how, how could we possibly think of sinning against God? What happens when we don't is a cascade. Um, I'm going to read again this, uh, the larger section here from verse 21 through 32. For all they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And here's where it, com- here's where it comes tumbling down. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of the bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. One thing leads to another. Just like in the Garden of Eden, they weren't grateful, so they ate the forbidden fruit. And here in Romans, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they, came, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts darkened, they became fools, began worshiping images. Therefore, God gave them over to impurity. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. I still hear Christians looking at our currently sexual, sexually mad culture and transgenderism and warning that you know, we keep this up, God, God's going to bring judgment. If they look at the, the voters of Ohio just this week, actually voting to make it legal to kill unborn children. An in, in unborn child, that is actually the language that was on the ballot, but they voted yes. The, the, the Christians will look at this and warn, hey, keep this up, God will bring judgment. They don't get it. This is Judgment. The impurity, the dishonorable passions, the debased mind that supports sacrificing children to to Baal, to Moloch, to choice or a new God, God gave them over to these things as judgment. And why, why did he do that? What is the root sin that led to this? It all goes back to verse 21. And it starts them with them knowing God, but not honoring him and not thanking him. And I'm convinced this is what has happened in the case of the United States. Um, in, in, our, in our house, um, as, a, as a general principle, we don't watch very many TV shows that were made after the 1980s. Even probably a lot of it comes from the 50s and 60s, just because almost everything that's been made since that is just is really unwatchable uh, for our family. So the, the temptation, at least for me, has come to start thinking that well, maybe the 90s, maybe that's where everything went bad. You know, that, that's, when, that's when Friends came out, which, had, which said, basically said sexual promiscuity is a good thing. You know, that's when we had a philander in the White House. So that must be when everything went bad. But no, that, that, was, that was the beginning of the judgment. What went bad began decades ago. You could even argue it began a couple centuries ago. The, these are the initial sinful, sinful attitudes came long before the judgment became. Look, look back to America's uh, colonial days when people escaped here for religious liberty. Religious liberty was the main reason. I'm going to read the, the Mayflower Compact really quick. Not canon, just to be sure. Don't get confused with that. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James by the grace of God, 
of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, king, defender of the faith, etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony of the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one of another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, offices from time to time that shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. So the, the glory of God, that, that's, that's like the main reason uh, they're coming here. And in, in later decades, uh, many others came escaping religious persecution. And we erected barriers against tyranny, uh, preventing them from interfering with the free exercise of religion and many other things. But at some point, the desire for reli religious liberty, the desire to be free to serve and worship God became just plain liberty and eventually just liberty to do whatever we want. The, the preamble to a constitution of the United States acknowledges that liberty was a blessing from God. It says, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to keep those blessings. It was God who blessed us with liberty. But over time, we became complacent and began to think it was something we did ourselves or something we just deserve. We did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And again, this began many decades ago, and we're seeing the cascading results of the judgment that comes from that. Now, some of you may be saying, well, that's certainly bad for the country as a whole, but it doesn't apply to me. Because we normally see this passage here cited specifically because of its detailed condemnation of the sin of homosexuality, both for men and for women. But look what else it says here. I'm going to read uh, from 28 to 32. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. This is a long list of sins. It includes some which we would consider to be the very worst, but also some aren't here. We might think, eh, that, that's not quite so bad. But again, verse 32, those who practice such things deserve to die. You know, which things were on this list? All manner of unrighteousness. I don't know about you, but I, I do that some of the time. We look at this list, murder, yeah, okay, yep, definitely. Haters of God, sure. Ruthless, yeah, probably. What about gossips? Do we gossips deserve to die? Do the boastful deserve to die? What about disobedient to parents? Now, some of you might have, might have noticed the parallels from the, the verse of the month in, in Ephesians. If you look a little bit earlier in that same chapter, Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, it's, it's kind of, it, again, it's like a parallel passage in Ephesians, like a, a shorter versions of it. In, our, in Romans, it says God gave them up. In Ephesians, it says uh, they've become callous. Well, I'll go ahead and read from 17 through 19 here. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Again, again, just like in Romans, why is the ignorance in them? It's due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It kind of reminds me of how in, uh, in Exodus, it talks about how Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened the Pharaoh's heart. It's, it's, a, it's a cycle of getting more evil, hardens heart, more evil, hardens heart again. And it, it's, it's, it's happening, it, just, it continues 
um, and it cascades uh, to worse and worse sins. Now, I want to be clear about one thing. If you follow Jesus, you are not under this curse. We're just talking about in Romans, uh, where God has given them up. The question here isn't, is why would you live like this? And, that, and that's what Paul does in Ephesians here, right after. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But, but that, that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, but back to the point of, you know, why we sometimes don't take all these sins seriously. I suggest it's because we have too low a view of the holiness of God. And in fact, it's difficult, impossible really, for us to even grasp the extent of God's holiness because we've been so privileged to have a direct relationship with him and for the grace he's given us for his Holy Spirit to actually dwell within us. Well, this is hardly the common human experience. You know, think, think more back to ancient times. Look to, to Moses in the burning bush. Um, before you put it on the screen, can any of the children tell me what did God say to Moses out of the burning bush? I'm, I'm afraid I couldn't hear. <laughs> yeah, he did say go to Egypt. That, yeah, very, very good. But a little before that, what's like the very first thing he says? Anyone would take a crack? Excellent. Exodus 3, 4 through 5. When the Lord saw that, he, that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Take off your sandals. Dirt itself became holy simply because God was near it. That, that, that's how holy God is. Uh, what happened when David was bringing the ark back from the Philistines? In uh, 2 Samuel uh, 6, 5 through 9. It's a new Bible. The pages are sticking together. So I'm just going to assume that uh, we'll, we'll move on and not read the entire verse. But basically what happened is the, the ark was, was tilting and someone just stuck out his hand to, to hold the ark up. But in, in, in God killed him just for having the audacity to try to touch the ark itself. And even because of this, even David was afraid for three months to bring the ark any further back to Jerusalem. He's like afraid that God, God is too holy. I can't have his ark in Jerusalem if someone touching it when, it's, when it stumbles um, is struck dead because of it. Then look at the temple itself. The presence of God in the temple was called the Holy of Holies. And again, we're in, we as believers are dwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God now. But at that time, who was allowed into the presence of God? None of the people. Hardly any of the Levites even. Only the high priest, and him only, only once per year on the Day of Atonement, as it says in Leviticus 16. The holiness of God that makes even the dirt around him holy, that strikes dead even someone who presumes to steady his ark, that allows only one man one time per year to enter his presence. This is the holiness which by God alone has the right to set the standard of perfection, though all of us fall woefully short of it. Yet it is the same holiness that was required for one man, Jesus, to be able to bear the weight of the sins of hundreds of millions of people, to take the death penalty for sins of homosexuality, gossiping, boastfulness, being disobedient, for not giving thanks, for all manner of righteousness in our place. 
He has the right to set the standard and the penalty. And fortunately for us, he also has the love to take it on himself. It's, it's time we stop trying to create a God in our image and judge God by human standards. It's so ingrained in American tradition that we have this tendency to subconsciously use enlightenment reasoning and political philosophy and assume that this sort of system of ethics applies even to God as opposed to something that we have found practical ourselves. So what is our standard when judging what God can morally do? We need to be honest with ourselves. Are we looking at Hobbes, Locke, Plato, Aristotle? Are we looking at the Word of God? What Paul is discussing here in in Romans 1, it's it's not a political issue. Political issues are more about, you know, justice as far as man's relation to man. So if a man wrongs a man, that's one thing. But what about when a man wrongs a holy God? We have seen God's response, and it is perfectly just. It's possibly because of this response, when we look at passages like Romans 1, we tend to, like, we like to focus on the more heinous sins, the ones that we don't do. That, that's them over there. That only happens to some people. No, this is what happens to the human race when it is enslaved to sin. I'll look back to, again, Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against just these particular men who happen to suppress the truth. No. It's revealed against men in general. And here's a characteristic of men. Now, this sermon can't cover the whole book of Romans, but he finally nails down this point in uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, where he cites uh, multiple psalms, uh, Paul does. So reading from Romans 3, 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all... Both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the state of all of us without God's grace. And it's all in contrast to a holy God. Back to verse 32 again. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, this sounds, this is, sounds curious. Why do they give approval to those who practice them? This appears to be an escalation here. Not only this small thing, but also this big thing. But I look at this first and I think, well, isn't practicing something worse than approving it? No, because why are they giving approval? It all goes back to they're giving approval because this is how they are suppressing their truth in unrighteousness. The direct contrast to the faith that Paul describes earlier. So the very first step we must all take is embracing the gospel in faith, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Giving approval to sin advances the delusion. It dissuades people from dealing with their sin, which is the main issue. But I want to do this. Stop thinking about you, what you want to do. Think about how you can honor God and mortify everything else. Now, chapter 2, up, 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 until, up until this point, the Jews are pretty much agreeing with Paul. Yeah, you, you stick it to those Gentiles. Romans chapter 2 is kind of Paul's version of, I don't know why you're clapping, I'm talking about you, for the Jews. So remember, verse 16, salvation was to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But there were Jews who thought they were special, that because of their ethnicity, what Paul just said in Romans chapter 1, it doesn't apply to me. They, they condemn the Greeks for these same sins, but their ethnicity, their Jewishness, gives them a free pass uh, to commit those sins themselves. So that's why in Romans 10, therefore, uh, Romans 2, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. 
because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Salvation is impartial. Jew, Greek, doesn't matter. Tribulation and distress, it's also impartial. I'll read verse 9 again. Every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So Paul's writing directly to Jews at this point to emphasize there's no distinction between Jew and Greek here. But where is there a huge distinction? There's still a distinction in here. The distinction is the one who does good and the one who does evil. Paul is very clear, both in Romans and Ephesians, that the outside world is wicked. But the main, the main notion, the, the application point in here, isn't related to the outside world. He doesn't focus the reader on the outsider's sin, but rather, why are you, the believer, living like this? If you aren't any different from the world, what makes you think that you will escape judgment? Don't weigh yourself against other sinners. Weigh yourself against the perfect God. And then, if you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, be thankful that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as we are now righteous through and because of him, and only because of him, let us live for him from faith to faith.